0: Hi, I'm Angie Brown, and you are listening to the Being Luminary Podcast, the podcast where I sit down with everyday, but by no means ordinary, thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Being Luminary Podcast. And this week I'm really delighted to have on the podcast to talk to me, Russell Hobby, and I'm going to ask Russell to introduce himself.
1: Hello, it's lovely to join you. I'm currently Chief Executive at Teach First, uh, which is a charity uh, which recruits teachers and leaders to work in schools serving low-income and disadvantaged communities.
0: Great, thank you Russell and thank you so much for joining me, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I, I would really love to hear a bit more about your origin story I said origin story the other day and somebody said that makes me sound like a superhero and in some ways yes it does um but it'd be lovely to hear a bit about your origin story and also about some of the some of the kind of roles that that you have ended up doing I know that's asking you to span a long period of time (laughs) but maybe you could cherry pick some things for us just so we can find out a bit more about you
1: yeah no no problem i will start at the beginning and see where see where we end up uh, on this and it, yes it was a, it's an interesting question isn't it origin story i like the sound uh, i like the sound of that um supervillains have origin stories as well as heroes so we'll see where it ends up and and you know when i when i first hear that question in the context of diversity equity and inclusion i start to think I have no origin story uh, for this one. I am—I um, fit in in the mainstream, in, uh, as our country would define it, in almost every um, characteristic uh, for that. And I am, for example, resolutely middle class uh, in how things are done. I'm a white, middle-aged man, although I wasn't always middle-aged in my origin story uh, as well. So, I, you know, there has to be a level of humility Um, in that but but you can look at events in our in our childhood and see how they affect and although I said I was resolutely middle class um, I was the son of a a single uh, primary teacher my mum brought my brother and I up um, during the 70s and 80s primary teachers did did not earn very much money uh, in those days my dad died when when I was eight and my brother was six and we experienced quite significant poverty in that regard until my mum was able to get back on her feet, get a job and do that. So I understand that. Uh, I understand that side of it uh, and you know, how, you, how you get by on that and what you don't have there. But also it, it's very interesting how class and, and money are not the same thing uh, as well. And we talk about intersectionality and the complexity of that. And that's quite an interesting one. To explore. So, as my my educational journey continued, and you know, being brought up by a teacher, I did well academically, um, as you would as you would expect um, on that front. And you know, I had a good education, and I got to go to Oxford, which was which was huge. I went to a comprehensive school, I got to go there. That's a good experience of the difference between being an insider and an outsider uh, on that occasion. But I I was always able to navigate those those sorts of things. So that kind of that kind of worked for me. I then went into. Uh, I spent many years as a management consultant. Um, it's it's interesting work, very intellectually stimulating, but you don't get to build much over that uh, over that journey. You're in and out of clients and uh, and so on. And I wanted to to build things, but I start. That's how I got into education work. I started training a lot of head teachers uh, way back in the days when there was a national college for school leadership uh, and um, the LPSH and other programs as well um so that that was the start of the journey and then I, I did the world's most unusual career switch I think I went from management consultancy to the trade union uh, movement
0: yeah I'm so interested in that transition
1: very often um there I led the NAHT the National Association of Head Teachers for seven years I started a couple of months after Michael Gove was appointed Secretary of State for Education so it was a tumultuous time uh, in education there and I love that uh, as well uh, but then after seven years, I, I moved, I've been a Teach First for five years now.
0: So I'm really interested in, in, in your childhood. Your mum was a primary school teacher. And to what extent did she influence a, a, an interest in education, if indeed she did? I, I mean,
1: I remember going uh, going into help in her class uh for that um she, she found it good when i was sort of in my late teens i was in my i was in my dms and my jades and i had quite long hair nobody who would know it who'd see me now would, would know it i had a, had a, a, a good good haircut um uh, in those days one i can't sustain anymore um and she kind of liked having that in her class it was a primary she was year six uh probably she taught year six for 20 years uh as well she was teaching the children of the pupils that she taught by the end of it it's an amazing thing to be able to do that but she, she liked having that kind of just shook up the class a bit I would read with the children so I understood that sort of thing it was good for her because as a single mum you know knowing what your kids are up to uh, and so on education used to be good for that it's no longer quite so good I think for people trying to raise families at the same time but it worked um, there in the school was very understanding um, and indeed one of the things that I always refer back to is that at the time my dad died my mum wasn't working because we were relatively young um, she was at home she was doing some supply teacher work um, and obviously she had to find that the head teacher of the primary school that I was at Mr Peacock Um, he went and gave my mum a job uh, for for that. He looked her up, found it, uh, gave her a job. Uh, I mean, I don't think he ever regretted it. He had a very talented year six teacher for 20 years, which I think is like gold dust um, uh, in these days um, for that.
0: Education used to be able to kind of, uh, not facilitate, used to be able to hold enough of the personal, I guess, to be able to ensure that people were, looked after either that you could say hey how about applying for a job but also that you could bring your kid into school as well
1: yeah spaces spaces for the humanity uh and the common sense and that's one of the things in the system at the moment that I get so upset by it's not that exams are bad it's not that data is bad it's the kind of accountability consequences attached to all of those that that crowd out the kind of the common sense decisions that a leader or a teacher would make without even noticing that, with nobody knowing what they did from that. And we just don't have room for that. Uh, and yet that was like, that was like a profound difference in my family's journey there from really struggling to a job that my mum could do while bringing up her children, Um which, yeah. Uh, and it does, where's the leap table um, for that? But I, I, and I say that heads are making those sorts of decisions every day today as well. They, we just don't notice it and there isn't, they're not rewarded for it. And if they're not focused on the data and the half-termly data drops, then, then eventually they're crowded out of the system.
0: Mm. And it's interesting that that's not a standout feature of what's required is the ability to be really skillful and, and intelligent around humanity, but that's not described as something that we're looking for. And yet, those are the things that bring about equity and inclusion for, for children like you and your brother when those life circumstances happen in, in schools and, and, and in childhood. One of the things that you asked me before we started recording is, is how, how broad a take on diversity, equity, inclusion do I have? And, and I'm interested in, in your origin story, in as much as the piece around diversity of family and what it looks like when people, people are bereaved or lose a parent or, or only have one parent bringing them up, as, as I did as a child, is something that is often missed because it isn't a protective characteristic. And yet it has these huge consequences for young people when it's missed or when it's an oversight in a classroom or you know, in a, in, arguably in, in, the, in the representation within, within the classroom the pastoral experience do you do you recall your school's ability or inability to to hold that uh, new identity i guess that you that you and your brother had as children i think
1: they did well on that one my, my primary school in uh, in particular by secondary school you're you know you get you unfortunately and particularly in those days you kind of get lost in the crowd uh, a little bit um uh, a little bit there um uh, and this was the eighties, lots of teacher strikes. Um, yeah, not, not a highly successful secondary e- education environment there, but the primary school was, was the right size to know it. There was enough room, uh, in the system. For enough space there for, for treating people as, as human beings as well. I think the main problem was that they were very keen to make sure that nobody thought there was any favoritism from having my mum in the school as well. So I always felt like I got told off worse than anybody uh, anybody else. I particularly remember the week I had to stand outside the staff room door at every lunch break. Uh, and I think my mum walked past uh, on that one. That was an awkward time for, for both of us as uh, as well. But I think it's still true today that for many parts of the public sector, children can be, and this is a difficult word, they can be events or incidents, you know, something has happened to them and, you know, they go into the hospital, the social worker uh, arrives uh, and so on, um, or, you know, to the police station and so on and something has happened. But that, that sense of a life, uh, and, a, and a family and a set of relationships and a person that it's the same person through all of those incidents. Actually, there's not many other. And there are a few, but there's not many other organisations than the school, which has that and can see that the, the happy child has become quiet. Um, what has happened there as well? And I, you know, I, th- I think it's really important that schools are here for education and for knowledge and learning as well. But as as a, a nature of the long term relationship and the the generally positive relationship they're here for good things to happen in theory um for that that they can see and know things that no other part of our public service can and again unless we find a way to capture that as a system and this is why i often think that having the school at the heart of of a range of services can be very powerful and i wonder if we might go back to some of the trends that we saw in the sort of early 2000s around the extended school
0: yeah uh, I, I'm really interested in that because I was watching the John Lewis advert, which is you know very current right now as we're speaking. And I was watching Edu Twitter's response to the John Lewis advert, which I think would be really different if you didn't work in the education sector, because actually for many educators, we do hold that consciousness of children, many children in care in our care. We do know that they're going on to a new placement. We do know that somebody is moving out of one family dynamic and into another. And so for many of us, that recognition that the wider world might see a window into these children's lives, I think is something that really resonates for people versus just not being aware of the hundreds of thousands of children who are in care in, in, in the UK. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. We, I mean, at Teach First, we do a fair amount of leadership development work these days as well. And we often, we often, and I know we're not the only ones to talk talk about the things that they don't teach you on the NPQH side of it, and how you might frame a curriculum around those. trying to keep a sort of list of well, they never taught me that type uh, type type things. And actually, the sheer diversity of a school leader's role from one moment you will be doing like deep strategic thinking on your plan to the next moment you'll be up on the ladder trying to unblock the gutter that was there to yeah, dealing with some quite tragic circumstances with a family, those sorts of things. I still remember very vividly my one of my very last days in office with the NAHT. I went to see my treasurer, who was a primary head teacher in Leeds. I just wanted to pop in to thank thank him. Our treasurers and presidents were all serving school leaders at the time uh, and I was sort of a paid member of staff and I popped in and his office was like full of furniture he had um suitcases he had a lampstand he had bed sheets all of these sorts of things I said I said Stephen are you you moving or something like something like that he said said no and this is where the story takes a difficult turn it's like one of my kids families was evicted last night and they've got nowhere they've got nowhere to go for all of their stuff so I said right dump all your stuff in, in my office, uh, for there, and we, you know, we were having a cup of coffee around around it. The or These are my deputy heads down at the council office, trying to sort out where they where they go. And again, I just thought, I mean, uh, that kind of really stuck with me as a sort of to me. And there are there are thousands of school leaders and teachers doing those sorts of things every day. And and if they weren't, this country would be a lot worse place for this. And we don't see it, we reward it. I think government takes it for granted that this sort of glue. That is that is there in, in many ways. It sort of it sort of uses it. Uh, I, I think, but if we funded it properly and resourced it and respected it, it's how, I mean, this could be a very powerful force for our country.
0: Mm, yeah, that humanity glue mm, that really touches me. Okay, so you You went on from comprehensive school did you do a levels at your comprehensive school? What was your area of interest? you an arts person a scientist where, where were you I'm
1: very much a humanities uh, sort of subject. I did history I did politics I did economics and English literature for A-level, but the politics and history was the thing. And I did, I, I really should be careful at admitting this, but I did PPE uh, when I went to Oxford uh, as well. So, and, and again, I followed the it's the politics and the economics side of it that I was interested in. I like to think I was interested in it as a subject, uh, not as a stepping stone to, to future careers, but I know PPE doesn't necessarily uh, have a lot of uh, respect in the world these days.
0: So you went did A levels and then and then you said you got into Oxford. Was that an easy get into Oxford? Did you just apply and you were kind of you know eased? It? Were you encouraged at secondary school? How did that decision come about? I wasn't particularly
1: encouraged, and um, you know one of the sort of disappointing things I think uh, to a degree about education in those days. I mean I, I I lived seven or eight miles from Oxford. I was in Abingdon. That was where my school my school was and stuff. And this distance like. Children at this school don't go there. Uh, are, are, you, are you are you sort of aiming above your station here? Will you be disappointed? And some of it was kindness, like "Oh, you'll be disappointed, or you won't fit in." And others, of it was just like, "What? what who do you think you are for this for this sort of stuff?" But you know, in those in those days, there was a fairly a process that you could follow. You know, it, you didn't have to have an insider knowledge on it you would apply and this is an, again another thing i, f- I find in, in public service is the more complicated the systems the more exclusionary they are um because you know you have to know you have to be an insider to know how to navigate them and i was an outsider i just did it and i applied and i got got an interview and um, at the time there's a certain naivety in this i didn't know how much tutoring other people were getting for these sorts of things as well sometimes you, it's good just to blunder in and what you don't know you know, it doesn't stop you from that from that sort of thing uh, as well. And the college I applied to you know, had a, a for that for that era had a very high proportion of state school students, and it was very encouraging and accepting. They wrote to my school afterwards and said like, if you've got more students, send them our way type stuff. But I don't know that they ever did on that one, which is um, which is which is a bit of a shame. So, but then you get there, and yes, I can understand why a lot of people. Are worried about fitting in. There are people who've got look, come up with just such very different lifestyle and different expectations, and that sort of confidence. I think that's what you pay for from a private school education is the sort of inherent belief that you belong in any room that you're walking into, uh, as well. But you don't have to let that stop us uh, on that on that front. But then again, of course, I can. You know, once I walk into a room, no one can at least look at me and know that I don't fit in. So I know what advantages I have uh, in terms of that. So I don't need to lecture anyone on on feeling excluded from that.
0: But at the time, can you recall feeling insider or outsider? You know, was there a sense in you, I belong here? Or, you know, how long did it take until you felt like, right, now I belong here?
1: I think it was relatively quick there. There was just some really nice people. (laughs) You know, you make friends, don't you? And across all sorts of boundaries of background, As well. And the thing I was really worried about was sort of the academic challenge and whether I would be up to that side of it. And I quickly found that actually it was the social challenge more than the academic challenge that was hard. I I didn't spend a lot of time in some of the the you know the Oxford Union type places. There were groups that you couldn't and wouldn't want to be part of, but I never felt a need to be. You know try and be a part of any group that didn't want to have me uh, there as well but there are all sorts of these sort of little things that you uh, that you don't see I mean I was looking at one of my matriculation photos where on the first year of that and i realized i was I was in my granddad's suit that was the only suit we could get get hold of he was a very different shape uh, to me uh, as well but uh, that so that's quite funny and you can see you can see people who've got suits that you know and they've worn suits from a very young age and this is your first the first suit on that one but but generally I think it was be- it was very good it was a very welcoming place um uh, as well and I got a lot I got
0: a lot from it mm, okay great that's so interesting so insider outsider is a dynamic that interests me well although more increasingly insider outsider or those people who just like to live in a liminal space just because they like it where do you position yourself where have you sort of felt insider or outsider
1: I do think this is a really interesting question, and I, I, was, I come. I do a bit of work now and again with big education, the the, the group, and I was actually invited to give a talk on influencing the system. Uh, and this was when I was in my union days, and you know I, I had access then. I could speak to a minister if I wanted to. If they wanted to test something out that was going on in education, I'd often get a call, and um, we could work through stuff uh, like that. And I had thirty thousand members that I could you know leverage that um, that power within the within the system and so I, I'd written some stuff around influence to do this and one of the questions that came back when I was, was talking to the colleagues that, that really made me think which was like is everybody in a position to use those tactics that you've outlined here because for one of the one of the tactics that I think is very powerful is if a minister has announced the decision, and gone public with it, it is very hard to change that because it's embarrassing. And this is true of any any leader, you know, if your head teacher has publicly stated, this is the strategy that we are going to be following. And you think, I don't want that to happen. That's quite an awkward position to be in and you're, you're likely to get into a fight there. If you're able to be in the room before the decision is made, you're, you've got so much more leverage at that sort of time. But who's in the room and who isn't in the room uh, on that? That's insider, outsider power uh, as well and so I started to think that or reflect on this I'm sure other people have done it far more than than me that there is this insider power and there's outsider power within the system and there are two models of that and if you are an insider then you know things like uh being involved early being constructive being discreet um being someone that you can that they can rely on they'll come to you for advice how should I do this sort of stuff those are those are powerful strategies and I've used them when when I've been an insider uh, as well, but they're not available for everybody, are they? And I, I started getting quite interested in Saul Alinsky, uh, those the, the sort of those sorts of strategies where you can see a, a sort of an outsider strategy. If you're an outsider, you've sort of got a triangle of actors in any system. You've got the people in power, you've got yourself, and then you've got the big mass of public opinion, which is usually sleeping, it's quiet, it's not interested, everyone's getting on with their lives. Uh, And your job as an outsider is to mobilise the third party because you don't have power over, over them. They do, but then they don't usually use it. So that you can see, like, as we, we're looking at sort of Extinction Rebellion, closing the M25, those, those throwing soup over paintings and stuff. And it's it's easy to get very irritated with that side of it. Particularly, I was sat in the M25 for a good hour uh, the, the other day. But you, what they're doing is they're, they're waking up the, the sort of sleeping giant, and and, and we'll use them and and... So I started to think that, that there is a, there's different forms of influence depending on whether you're inside and outside. But one of the most important things to do is to figure out which one you are as well. And that's not as simple as it looks because we are all insiders and outsiders in different parts of our lives. And so, you know, those Extinction Rebellion activists, they're outsiders to the current power structure, but inside their movement, they are insiders. And if they apply the same tactics... Uh, that they would to embarrass the government to say embarrass their colleague activists they, they will find that they lose their influence as well and I I, I think I, I think and I hope that we're all a bit of both in different parts of our lives although obviously some of us are insiders in much more useful environments or bigger bigger scenes as well and that's where the equity bit comes in so I, I do I do think being sort of us people think Thinking through different forms of influence, understanding where we come from, and then you've you've just raised that really interesting question about the people who skirt the boundaries between those as well. Those those liminal people who not, neither want to be insiders nor outsiders as well. Um, and I don't have a good answer on that one. I have that's just something to think about as well. It's fascinating.
0: Well, it's just it's I just think it's really it's always fascinated me that the boundary between between insider and outsider is is possibly even more dynamic than either of those spaces because you have a a vantage point on both. And and I think that there's there's almost there's almost agency and power in the vantage point as much as in you know arguably from your description of insider or outsider there to be an insider actually can often limit the agency that you have you become very confined and constrained and actually outsider roles often people come to me and you know they want coaching and they feel like they're an outsider we can't get purchased on the system how do i get a leadership role i come from this background and i'm unable to be promoted actually sort of trying to shift people into into the liminal there well, what what can you see from the position of being neither in or out and, and what might that lend you is something that I, again, don't have an answer to, but it really interests me. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. And I think, think of it in a dynamic sense of moving between those things. So sometimes you're in and sometimes you're out as well. And how you, how you live that, that might be, that might be part of it. And you're definitely right that insider influence is, is comfortable, but it's constrained. You have to sacrifice a lot because it's about the compromise between your view and the, the those in power. Um, And you sort of, molded whereas the outside of you although it may feel like nine times out of ten you're you're excluded for the conversation if you can mobilize that then you can you can then completely overthrow the, the system and uh, you know one of the best examples of outsider influence in the education system was the the NEU's um school cuts Campaign is still talked about today, and I think it's being revitalised. I hope it is as well because we're in a very difficult financial situation now. The NE, NEU, although they were often invited in to talk, generally speaking, the government at the time was, you know, saw them as as potentially being in conflict as well. But by making every parent in the country see exactly how much money uh, their primary school or secondary school or special school was going to lose, and, and at the t- just before a general election. I think they had a direct impact as a result of that. And I think it was a fantastic campaign.
0: Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. So you have a role as a trade unionist. Did that position you? I mean, from what you're saying, that kind of positions you insider in that you have the ear of ministers and that you, can, you have this huge membership, as you describe. But often that role is seen somewhat as outsider also. And I'm just thinking about the way that head teachers view relationships often with union, with union members within their own organisations and how challenging that dynamic can feel to head teachers. Do you have any insight on how how people can navigate that, that you know, those, those two roles to, to bring some spark of brilliance and effectiveness? Because I, I think that the dynamic's really helpful for organizations to have almost insider outsider in the same room discussing things, but it often feels a bit a bit a bit hot emotive and difficult
1: yes it can be it can be and that particularly occurs when you find your unions are applying outside power to you as a head teacher which probably got that and so again you can translate this like the head does have a lot of power uh, in there and when I whenever I spoke to the the leaders in the teacher unions which we had very good contacts with they would they would say look at the end of the day managers can do what they want that's the that's the position of authority in the school but but if you can get the parent population worried about what's going on inside the school then you're waking the sleeping giants outside that relationship as well that's what kind of as a head you want to avoid if if at all possible you want to develop a sort of insider relationship with uh, with that and, and you know just for broader context i was general secretary of the head teachers union that's not you know that that Gives you natural insider. Uh, you are invited in to speak, uh, uh, and that. Uh, and I, I thought, thought, know, my analysis of the situation was that I can do more good from that position. I can influence policy before it's created, and I, I felt like I did and could um, on that front. But again, you know, there were times when that that broke down, and we went out on strike in 2012 on the pensions dispute uh, as well for the first time in history. So again, you, you, you're there in different times, but but as a head teacher with the unions, I think that, you know, sometimes there is irreducible conflict there. You know, you've got to do something in the school that is not going to be good for the short-term welfare of the teachers in that school. I mean, and the ultimate thing, if you've got to make redundancies because your budget's been cut dramatically, there is going to be, be a conflict. But equally speaking, in the long-term, there I don't think there's any conflict between the, the, the interests of the school and the interests of the teaching stuff there. As a school leader, you want happy, well-rewarded staff. And as a as a body of teachers, you want a successful school as well. You can't, you know, you want high standards and you want to be well regarded by your your stakeholders as well. So none of you can survive in the long term without that. So the question is whether you can look beyond your current conflict to see the fact that you've got, you know, you've, you've got those shared interests and the, the best union leaders that, that I've seen across every sector as well are, are able to see that, that, you know, maybe this isn't the month for the strike on uh, this one because we'll all be laid off if if we do. But the best managers also think like, I can't, you know, I, I've got to treat myself fairly. I've got to share the gains with them on that, on that front. But that relies on, Good quality leadership on both sides of the equation. And if you've got a branch secretary who's thinking, oh, all I want to do is work my way up the hierarchy to get on the national executive, I need a couple of you know high profile fights um, to get there. Uh, or if you have a head teacher who sees the unions as an enemy, as opposed to a potential ally from that. And of course, you, the unions uh, and a good union rep, they know so much about what is going on in the school and what people need. So if you can, if you can work together. On, uh, I think, yeah, the thing, the trick is that uh, can we think about the bigger, longer term picture rather than today's conflict?
0: Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Russell. Um, so, so one thing just uh, that I want to ask you before, before we move on to talking more about diversity, equity, inclusion is you as somebody who's significant in education. Have you taught? Have you been a teacher? No. No. And how does that how do you feel about that? Does it ever present any conflict or, or, or challenge for you?
1: Not really, I, I have to say, because uh, I've always been upfront uh, about it. Um, I've always been clear of what I've done, where I came from and so on. And I hope that over the years that I've learned enough about the sector that I'm not making stupid mistakes uh, around uh, or assumptions around it, and that I approach it with a level of humility um, around this that I'm, I'm not trying and we all slip into this because we all have views on teaching but I'm not trying to tell experts uh, too often how to do their job as well and I stick to what I what I'm good at which is the systems and the policies politics um, of it and generally that's that's worked fine I mean I when I applied for the the role of the uh, of as leader of the head teachers union I was sort of, I knew I could do the job but I also assumed that I wouldn't get the job it was a low risk it was a low risk thing for me I, I was ready to look like, i have a go they'll never give it to me I'm not a head teacher uh, for for that sort of thing but at the time it, what it became clear is that of course each different group of head teachers has different interests as well there's primary heads and secondary heads Secondary heads didn't really want a primary head uh in charge of it and vice versa so having someone who had none of it <laughs> was was actually the safest the safest bet uh, uh in the end so yeah I just think you know the education system teachers are at the heart of it, uh, and that's the most important job. And every job from there, we need to think of ourselves as like, how are we helping teachers to, to do their, their work? But the system needs other roles within it to make it function and the skills that w- would make you good in leading a school. And, and you would have seen this in your progression through maths as well. There's a big shift from I've run my school to I'm running a mat, and there's another shift as well. So I think if we can respect each other's expertise and not and not tread on it, I think that helps.
0: Yeah. I mean, I asked the question because I feel like sometimes we get quite calcified as, as educators and, and, and quite kind of, um, our focus becomes quite narrow around who should be involved in decision making and, and who shouldn't be. And it's been so interesting because I've worked outside of the sector before I was in education. I worked in publishing. There's loads about publishing that was really relevant to then managing a school. I mean, tons and actually I would say some of my some of my skills around headship came from managing deadlines getting things done you know in 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 the publishing world and and definitely not things that I learned while I was doing my mpqs so it it, it really it just always really interests me how people how people feel about the sector and whether there's a inside or outsider dynamic sometimes in the sector that's that's quite well um guarded I think there might be but anyway <laughs> So um, you moved on to Teach First. And tell me about that transition, because I, I, I locate Teach First very much in this sort of engaged in this diversity, equity, inclusion world because of the values, because of you know, the, the way that the organisation positions itself. T- tell me about that transition.
1: So I have a joke uh, about my, my career. That when I was a management consultant, my job was to make change happen, whether it was needed or not. Uh, and that when I was a trade union uh, worker, my job was to stop change from happening, whether it was needed or not. And I felt the time had come to go to a place where we made the changes that were needed to happen um, on that on that front. Um, and you know, with the best will in the world, a large part of a union's job is to stop things from happening bad things from happening and we need people who are willing to do that and we should be very grateful for it but it's not necessarily in its outward facing aspects a proactive role to build stuff um, and that's why i felt like it was it uh, was time to move move on and teach first is in a is in a fascinating position it's it's a large organization uh now training you know this year we recruited just a shade under 1400 teachers to join the program for two years so we have about 3,000 teachers training we're working with five thousand early career teachers and about a, a couple of thousand middle and senior senior leaders um within the system so there's a lot going on there so it was an interesting management challenge of systems and operations and so on which i find it i find interesting but it wasn't a government agency we have contracts with the government we're quite constricted um in that they pay us to do our work and and you know you you've got to be, got to be careful uh, uh, on that front. But with, there's a level of autonomy, there's some al- alternative funding mechanisms, and it is driven by an underlying equality issue, which is about the fact that income drives education outcomes far more than it should. And obviously, every, there's individuals that break it, and there are schools definitely that break that, that cycle. But you look at any, any sort of set of national-level data and your parents' income and class and background can drive your educational outcomes more than the, the sort of the talent and potential that you have in there. And that, that strikes me as a really shaky foundation for a country um, to have. And that actually, if you look at some of the big intractable problems we face as a country... I think you can root some of them. Yes, some of them are just due to, to bad budgets and, and those sorts of things. Uh, uh, but some of them you can root to the sort of fundamental inequalities that exist from, from childhood and before childhood um, onwards. And so, you know, we won't be a high-growth, prosperous economy, if you want to go down the economic route, unless we educate every young person. I mean, we can't afford to have a, a system where, we, where grammars and privates cream off a small group of people to educate them and and others don't. Everyone needs those skills now. And if we invested in education, we would get a high-growth economy. But equally, you've you've also got this sort of sense of a bit of a malaise in in the Western democracies. We've just seen the midterm elections in the US, which were much more positive than I feared, actually. But equally so, there's still just big sort of waves of dissatisfaction and alienation for all sorts of reasons with the countries that we have built um, despite technological progress and despite relative to other parts of the world prosperity as well and I think it's because not everybody gets a share in that Um, and that that when you see growth that, that you don't get to take part in and when you see prosperity and you see the technology gains and all you're left with thinking is like well that's more just likely to make me unemployed or uh, make other people richer you get this sense of like well why would I sacrifice why would I participate why would I vote um why would I you know compromise with this system what's in it for me I might as well break it uh because who knows what will come next but it can't be any worse than what I've got and I I, you know I'd like to send a a shot across the bowels I think to a degree that's why you get things like Brexit and Trump and, and other things which is like if we want sort of liberal democracy and a free market economy and social democracy and so on, these things have to work for everybody. Uh, they, they have to give everybody a reason to be part of it. They have to live up to their own rhetoric, in a way, and I don't think they have. And I think that's because we're not investing in the education of every young person. And so, so for Teach First, that was generated by, by sort of income and uh, disadvantage. And in, in recent years, it's also been, been clear to us as it was to many long before that, that, that there are other barriers within this. There's a whole range of sets of barriers there. There are many things that are blocking young people from from achieving what they should and and enjoying their childhoods and their, and their school school days from there. Uh, and you know, and most recently we we have seen the the issue of race in education and those those barriers, which again would would be, a, be very aware to many people long before that as well, um, and you know, at Teach us we, we need to be clear. We are our founding mission is about income inequalities and their impact on. It. We cannot disentangle them from some of the other challenges, and we don't need to disentangle them either. There are many strategies that we can build that will work for everyone who's not fully represented in the system uh, as well. I think, and it's dangerous to try and set groups of underrepresented people against each other, which you sometimes see uh, as well. There are, there are strategies that can work for everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it was Audre Lord said, you know, there's no hierarchy of protected characteristics. And I think that there's no hierarchy of, of challenge. There's just challenge. And, and we're, we're finding different doorways into trying to ensure that people can overcome those barriers. But it's essentially doorways into the same thing. As you say, certain people feel that they have no voice, no agency, and they're underrepresented. And what can we do to ensure that they feel that they do or want to participate? So how does Teach First, or you as, as the CEO of Teach First, how do you communicate a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion as part of the work that you're doing? Are you, are you largely talking about that kind of economic disparity and the impact of education, or do you do other things also?
1: We major on the economic disparities, but we try and address other topics as well. Um, so, um, you know, we will talk about the diversity in the curriculum, uh, for example, and we've done some work, we, we did a big campaign called Missing Pages around the English literature uh, exam specifications and the lack of diversity uh, in there, which was, which was, which was great. Uh, and we have a, a partnership with Mission 44, Sir Lewis Hamilton's charity, which is focused on getting more black people to, to STEM teaching roles uh, as well which is very exciting uh stuff and he visited one of our schools uh, a, a couple of months back which was a surprise visit as well which was great i didn't get to go to it uh, unfortunately i was getting married which i think is a good a good excuse <laughs> but, but that, yes but it was it was that was great um work so we, we do try and uh, a range of areas uh, on this we we also uh, do a lot of work on lgbt plus representation and inclusion I'm very proud uh, of that work Um, I think we've done we've made good strides in this and for us it's always you know there's an an interesting dynamic which is there's us as an organization our own practices and systems as well and then there's the impact that we have on the wider world around us uh, as well you you recruit 1400 teachers in a year who are you recruiting how are you treating them where are you sending them to those sorts of you know, those are quite big, but unless we are looking at ourselves and how we work, then that's a sort of a shaking foundations built on sand, really. And of course, you know, we are, you know, we are flawed as an organisation. I'm flawed as a leader. We're flawed as an organisation. We, we're on a journey to, get, to go, go from that. We've got our own gaps in terms of diversity and our own mistakes that we make as well. And
0: what, what are those? What, where would you say those, those are? I talk about hiding spots and
1: yeah. So I think that we've we've made good progress, but I think representation of people from um, global ethnic majority backgrounds in leadership roles within Teach First is a weak is a weakness um, uh, on that front, and also in some of our front facing roles. Um, so we you know, there's a very diverse range of roles in, uh, inside uh, inside Teach First. There's about eight hundred people who work who work there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The the largest group are what we call our our development leads, who are qualified teachers um, with lots of very extensive experience in school, who are coaching and mentoring the trainees, and they spend a lot of their time in schools um, working with them. We're in a bit of a catch 22 situation where we're working, we recruit from the education system, which is itself not as diverse as it should be. Uh, for this you have to have qts to work in one of those those roles because you have to have that credibility i couldn't do that job and also i am very reluctant to take you know, people from global ethnic majority backgrounds out of their career tracks in, in schools as well because we really need them there as well there's no excuse we've got to do better uh, at that one but it's a sort of explanation we need to think carefully about how we might tackle that i don't think that we are we have a given as much thought to disability within our organisation uh, as we should, but I think we're doing a lot of work on that. Um, and it, it's a great example, I think, of how investments that you make can benefit everybody. Because if you think in terms of accessibility, then very, very often everybody has a better experience with your programmes as a, as a result of it. It's not about about sort of diverting resources as well. But But as a charity, we have a, a relatively young... Workforce. And many charities actually tend towards the older end of the employment spectrum. We're at the opposite uh, of that, and disability and, and age. They're not universally related, but there is a sort of connection to that. So we've we've just not thought, I think, enough about about that, which we we should and will and, and are doing at the moment. But it's got an interesting dynamic between speaking and standing up for these things without trying to present yourself, particularly me, as an expert or having solved it and look at look at me um it, it has to be more about sort of like i've got to uh, i've got a, a duty to do what i can with the the, the influence that i have but but not trying to say you know present ourselves as having cracked any of this side of it and constantly working on our own improvement as well as the sort of external influencing that we might we might try to do
0: i think that's a that's a something that many people i speak to don't want to fall into we've cracked it we're experts and i guess one of the reassurances I would provide is is that it isn't going to be cracked and I I think that that's just I mean in the same way sadly that we're probably never going to crack safeguarding in schools we're never going to crack diversity equity inclusion or at least the hundreds of years of creating inequities is going to be matched (laughs) by the many many years of dismantling some of that And, and that and that journey is the thing that that can provide so much um, inspiration and so much energy. I think, rather than you know, reaching the end of it being the focus. So, as a CEO, where would you say your hiding places are in this massive field of diversity, equity, inclusion? Do you have any areas that you think, oh, I really, I feel awkward about talking about this, or I, oh, or I need to know more about this, or I'm, I'm kind of actively educating myself in in this or that particular characteristic or conversation
1: i feel awkward about most of it talking about it i have to say uh for that one um I, you know the, the potential for giving offense or for ignorance um or and for being ignorance i think is is real in almost every area uh, I, i've got to the point where it's like well tough uh, for that, you know, you've got to take that, that's that's fine, I'm, I'm happy to take it on the on the chin for that one, so I hope it doesn't stop me from engaging, but uh, and actually feeling a certain sense of awkwardness is quite appropriate, given what you've just said um, there as well, It's uh, it should be hard, it should be daunting, uh, I, I think. The, the area of um, trans rights, uh, and so on, is something that I'm really trying to understand more of, uh, it affects the it affects my personal family life uh, and so on, and there are you know some really hard debates going on there with some, some real anger building up on on various different sides as well. Finding a way to to navigate that while making sure that we do stand up for the group of people who are most likely to be victims in this, this situation, which I think is clear uh, as well. That's something that I've, I've got to do a lot of learning and thinking about.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I hear that more than any, anything else at the moment, actually, from, from lots of people at different levels of organisations as well. Um, and, and I'm really heartened by the number of people who are also connected within their family constellation often. People who hold multiple and shifting and changing identities also and are having to think about this on a personal level and then bring that personal thinking into their leadership and kind of think, oh, okay, so how is this going to influence the way that we run this organisation? Oh, I think that's great that those connections are being made. So, so what's next for Teach First in this area of work? What are your next steps around diversity, equity, inclusion?
1: One of the things we've worked hard on, and I think it is an important foundation, is, is data and transparency. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's a great form of accountability to get this stuff out there, talked about, to admit it, you know, publish it. We publish our workforce stats. It's on our website. We do it. Come if it's once or twice a year, but you can go right in and don't have to log in. You can just go and download the reports and have a look at that. We publish it in, internally, uh, so our affinity groups can challenge us uh, on our progress as well. One of the, so and one of the very powerful things, for example, has been the gender pay gap. That's been um, that's worked, but we're also publishing the ethnicity pay gap that we have now as well. We just we constantly seek ways to to get that transparency and accountability. Um, for us, we participate in lots of benchmarking um, exercises and systems. The Stonewall Index has been a very powerful driver for us, um, uh, and really pushed improvements um, there. Uh, and very, you know, we've gone right up into the top of this top fifty, hundred organizations in that. front. we have the Working Families um, Benchmark as well, which we look at, and that's you know, there's a there's a connection to my early origin. Story. I I attach huge importance to being an organization where you can be, be part of your family, you know, raise a family or whatever caring responsibilities that you have. It's not always children. It can go in many different directions. Um, while still saying not everybody has kids, you know, not everybody has a family, but you know, it would be great to be a kind of workplace where you didn't feel that constant conflict between the two and it's never going to be perfect there's always going to be a time when it's like I can't do my work I've got to do my family and vice versa but you don't want to be sacrificing one to the other the whole time I don't particularly don't want to be sacrificing your family um to work and that was particularly hard during lockdown for everybody I think that that illuminated um a lot of uh, a lot of that and we've we've really put a priority on flexible working practices and working from home and and those sorts of things I've not mandated a minimum number of days to be back in the office, for example, since lockdown. I do say like, I want people to come in from time to time. It's really important to have the social connection to see each other. It can make a huge difference if you're being on Zoom all of the time. But, uh, but I do, I feel like we can, you know, there's lots that we're not perfect at as an employer. We've got far too much work on um, at the moment, but we, we respect families. So uh, that's the benchmark that's, that's, um, that's driven that. We've just, we're just implementing this term, a, a report and support mechanism, and this is for our trainees out in the field. So if they are experiencing any forms of discrimination, harassment, microaggression, and so on, there's either an anonymous or identifiable system now that they can report through. We've always had informal connections, but we've formalized it, built a system around it as well. So we can track, you know, where is this happening? Have we properly dealt with each issue? Even the anonymous, I, mean, I know we need anonymous, but sometimes it's, it's quite painful to get anonymous feedback because you can't act on that person's problem. But you need that, do you? You need people to have a space where they can, they can say that. But we're rolling that out this term. We're also very interested in the, the representation of, of the leadership population within education. As well, and what role we can play um, in increasing that that, that level of um, diversity. You know, we've been uh, next year we will celebrate our twentieth anniversary as an organisation. Um, so we've been training people for for that length of time. There are over a hundred head teachers now who qualified through the Teach First routes, um, including some very high profile um, school school leaders, very successful ones. Um, there, we've trained sixteen thousand people so far, uh, and about 60% of them are still in teaching roles uh, as, a, as a result of that. We can play a role, um, in both in terms of the diversity of our intake, whether they thrive and, and, and excel in equal proportions through their time with us, and whether we can push them into the opportunities that, that are available. It, it, it ain't easy, <laughs> as anyone who's been involved in this will through. Will, there are no kind of magic bullet systemic you know sort of twitch that i can turn on the program that will make a difference for this and there are many false starts and sort of well-meaning things that go wrong and make things worse rather than than better as well and at the end of the day you know all the mentoring all the encouragement all the training all the cv clinics and, and so on unless there are good jobs out there that are equally paid and are on the academic teaching and learning track as much as the pastoral track. That's the thing. We need to, get, people need to be offered good jobs in leadership positions, uh, and then be well treated when they're in them. So, and that's a bigger picture than any one of us can tackle.
0: Yeah, although you're tackling it, arguably through the leaders that you create, that you're working with, through the teachers that you are supporting into the into the system, you know, the better it gets, the better it gets.
1: It's a wheel of a ratchet effect. I I hope and 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 do our thing do our thing there.
0: I just wanted to ask you uh, one more question because I haven't asked you about being luminary, and I wonder if you can indulge me and just tell me what you think luminary diversity, equity, inclusion work would look like for Teach First.
1: My kind of Aspiration behind it all that unifies all of the sort of different actions and barriers is a sense that where there is discrimination at work, people have to build protective shields around themselves that they have to hide and change and edit and censor uh, and adapt. You know, even when they get into that st- sort of stuff, they can't a, they're carrying a load on their backs as a result of all of that as well. And, and you know, the, the things about having to work twice as hard to, to get to the same same place, I think, are, are very true. We will be there when when that load can be put down at the doorway and people can just be focusing in on, you know, be the person they they want to be and do the work that they want to do and uh, that's hard enough. so, you know, the, the work is hard uh, for, for this. It's, and you don't need all of that extra load that we're putting on people to hide who they really are uh, as a result of it or to, or to not be proud of it or to edit how they would normally act in, in ways large and small on that. And I think if, you could, if we could reduce that or eliminate that, you know, they would rise up, you know, your backs would straighten as a, as a result of that. And that would feel great for everybody involved and the organisation would, the energy in it would be huge and I'm not naive enough to think that it's, it's all about us or that if you've got a society that's doing, doing, putting that load on that people can just put that load at the door and forget all about it as well but if you could get a little bit of that way, that way there, I would, I would feel like that as an organisation that we were, yeah, we were heading in the right, in the right direction.
0: Mm, Fantastic. Thank you so much, Russell. I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. Me too. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure.
1: No, it was a pleasure. It was, it was fascinating stuff. And I really appreciated the chances to think and explore these these topics.
0: Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. So please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.